Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike. In this episode, we chat with Al Brown as he talks about flying the A-10 Thunderbolt II, also known as the Warthog. He also chats about flying the F-86D, the F-89, the F-100 and the F-4 Phantom. So if you like what we do here, there's a couple of ways you can help us out and keep the channel going. That's by heading to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, where you can help us out for as little as $1 a month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. We have a weekly newsletter that updates you what's coming up on the channel, and you can sign up to that by going to aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you and enjoy. So Al, when did you first become interested in aviation? Oh, when I hurt my knee playing football, American football. Oh, really? I'd never been in an airplane. And then my uncle uh, flew in World War II off Carrier. And uh, he said, why don't you start, see if you can get into pilot training. I'd never been in an airplane, so I wasn't all that interested. Mm-hmm. So I just, I went to pilot training and uh, strangely enough, I had a natural bent for it, which is... Very lucky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what year did you join the US Air Force, and could you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on? Well, I, I joined in the Air, uh, Maine Air National Guard okay. in the latest of October 56. Then in 57, I went to Texas for pre-flight training as a cadet mm-hmm. and graduated from pilot training. I, I flew prop jobs in training. Mm-hmm. T-34, T-28, and then to uh, T-33 jet trainers for advanced, you know, a basic finish when I got my wings in 1958. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Texas Perrin Air Force Base for advanced fighter interceptor training, which is F-86D. Okay. Fought my first Mach 1 pin. Wow. Was that, was that without being in a dive? Or was yeah, it was 86, yeah, up to 40,000 feet and roll it over and straight down. <laughs> the F-100 was the first one that had level flight. Yeah. Uh, supersonic. So I was 20 years old. Yeah. Wow. That must have been pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> what squadron were you based with on the F-86? Well, it was just a training base at, uh, in Texas, uh, so I, I can't even remember the name of the squadron. So it was, it was a training, training outfit, training, training squadron, yeah. yeah, at Perrin Air Force Base outside of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Then I went back to my Air National Guard unit in Maine flying F-89s. Everybody goes, what's that? Yes, I, I, I had to Google it. So it's a scorpion, they call it, because the tail yeah. goes up. It's twin engine. It was built for enemy bombing, mm-hmm. you know, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And we did the D model, we fired rockets. <laughs> you couldn't hit anything with that. <laughs> and then we had the J model, I flew, which had a nuclear rocket on it. It was an actual uh, missile. Wow. And it fired a nuke, one KT. And you, if you could see the Russians coming, you, you couldn't get up with them because it was an old hog. It was <laughs> the first fighter we had with afterburners on it. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Okay, you, so. you you could sit there and light them both and hold the brakes. It didn't have much power in the old days. Really, yes. But you could snap up and shoot a missile, and you had a shield that you wore. You could pull that over your eye when the nuke went off. So, yeah, yeah. what was it actually like to fly? What was its handling like? Uh, it was a big, sloppy, twin-engine, you know. It was quite interesting. My first... My first flight with every jet I flew, the F-86, I had a hydraulic failure, 
minor one, but I landed okay. The F-89, my first flight, I had a hydraulic failure. It didn't have any brakes and that, but I landed out okay. Then from there, it had a weird system of fuel gauges and all that. It was a real old-fashioned type machine. Then I went to Albuquerque, uh, National Guard of Flap 100s. Mm -hmm. Totally different game. My first flight in it, I lost hydraulic system again. <laughs> went off the runway because it was the brakes and the nose wheel steering. And the guy was chasing me. <laughs> he says, ah, that was a good land, and they land behind you because it was a single seat. All of a sudden, you see this dust and dirt. It was me out, and I'm going, I don't know. What. <laughs> a great story to tell. Yeah, that, I so I, I uh, but I love flying a Hun. It was really good, but it was an unusual aircraft as far as had the super swept wing. We lost a lot of people were killed in it. Mm. Uh, adverse yaw, mm -hmm. if you heard the term. That became synonymous with the F-100, and you got to a point where you're pulling too hard and slow that the control's reversed in aileron. So if you're in a hard right bank and you wanted to go back left, if you let you let off and use rudder, which people see you don't need rudder and jets, wrong. <laughs> you pull the pole to the left to turn back and it will roll farther over and splat. Really? Yeah, I got some good film of that. You might have to watch that. And there's F1. I did it in one of my briefings here. You can find it on yeah. the internet. Easy. Perfect. Uh, so could you feel a power difference coming from the F-89? Oh, yeah. The Hun, of course, was the first one you could go to a level flight and afterburner. Mm -hmm. In fact, I flew a, a 56 model. That's how old they were. You don't think it, was so a th it was the third one off the production line that went into service. They still had it in Albuquerque. No way. It was all bent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They still flew. Wow. So what I, weapons would it uh, carry at this time? Well, this was an A. It was just two missiles and uh, guns. Four was it a capable platform, would you say? And, yeah. Well, that's the uh, sack. You probably don't remember, but uh, 1960, was it? I think it was. Yeah, they. it was an Albuquerque God one that shot down the B-52. Over Mount Taylor, yeah, west of Albuquerque. They, we used to carry live weapons. We have air defense against Mexico. I don't know, <laughs> but then the whole U.S. was ringed with air defense command aircraft. And they had live uh, sidewinders on them. Yeah. And this guy, uh, we'd go up and track and tracking the engines on a, and listen to the growl, which you get to tell you you, it's hearing and seeing the heat. And it's, they're all locked on and had safety switches. And one just took off with this guy and hit the 52, and down it went. That oh, was a big, oh, Kurt LeMay was real happy with that. <laughs> so when I got there, they'd taken them off, and they'd found it was water getting into a special pylon they'd built on them. And so they eventually got them back on with a special bolt going in the side of the missile so you couldn't leave the rail unless you had a thing that withdrew the bolt. <laughs> Fixes in those days were a little different. Wow, yeah, of course. Yeah. So how long did you spend on the F-100s? Uh, three years, yeah. And you enjoyed that time? Yeah, I really did. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun to fly. I had a lot of experiences in you know, the comp compressor stalls. That wouldn't the compressor just, it shows I've had enough. The old fire would come out the front end. And it'd knock your feet right off the rudder pedals. And bam, the first time they hit me. 
Christ, I thought I'd been shot. And they thought, oh, no, it's just compressed. I'll get back on the throttle and unload it, you know, okay. <laughs> but you learn those sort of things. It sounds like a scary aircraft, I have to say. It, it was. We lost it. We killed a lot of people in it back in those days until they finally learned really how to handle it with adverse shock. Because mm -hmm. we still use them in Vietnam. <laughs> Yeah, was, uh, yeah was, was it capable in that environment? In yeah, well, they used it uh, in the south mostly. Uh, but up north, they used the two-seater as wild weasels, you know, the Sam Hunters, before they got the two-seat 105 doing it. Mm -hmm. So they used them for that. I found it, uh, well, it was a daunting airplane. I flew the C model as well. I was one of the few that did because we could. Then we had bomb racks on it, and we could tow the dart for aerial shooting. So we couldn't do that in the A because didn't have the bomb racks. Mm, yeah. So we got some C's, and I learned to fly that with just heavier, mm -hmm. and had more stuff on it. I got too many stories about that. I went wrong. <laughs> so how many hours did you get on that F100? Well, I'm trying to think. I think I had like 850 missions. And about 700 hours. A fair bit there. Quite yeah, a lot. Not, I mean, it was very short flights. It was a short legged without the tanks, which we never flew it with. So your missions were like, you'd be burning fuel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. But you enjoyed your time then, that was. Oh, yeah. I think I got 850 on it or something. Yeah. Brilliant. There's a lot of flights. Yeah. It's equivalent to 50,000 hours of airline time sitting drinking coffee with those guys. Well, I, I converted then. I won't go into that story. I say, you want to go to paratraining with the Army? I told you, I can't wait. <laughs> Georgia in August, and I was 32 years old. Three. <laughs> but I went. We'll put you, you can fly the F-4E. And you go to sea survival school as a training officer, but you got to be parachute qualified. So I did all of that. Mm -hmm. I got in the F-4, the E model, which is the latest one. And it was funny because I'd been flying a souped-up airplane that would still probably whip an F-16 really? today, damn near it, yeah. Wow. And so I got in the F-4 and they, yeah, we're doing a Mach 2 run. I went and it was 1.98 and was out of fuel. I had to come home. They said, what do you think of that? And I said, that's a pig. <laughs> well, they didn't like me for that, but I, I was being honest. These guys had never flown. Mm -hmm. There's only about 35 of us ever flew that special model one. We go up over U2s and intercept them. We can go above them. Oh, yeah. Never heard of that before. No, it did. We had special doors cut in the sides because it accelerated so fast from about 1.4 up to 2, 2.3. Mm -hmm. It would choke the engine because we didn't have very ramps. And we had it. they built a switch and it would open the doors on the side of the fuselage so air could get by fast enough. Because it would flame out, otherwise you have to come back down, restart it, and go back up. <laughs> That's how fast it was. This was 1969 yeah, when we sold them. So the F-4E, that's all I did. I flew it locally, bombing, and that which was natural for me, easy to do. I'd been in Huns. Uh, did you enjoy flying the F-4? Because a lot of people love it, some people. I, yeah, because I was flying. Mm -hmm. it, it was just a big contrast to a lot of people who'd only flown some other things like 84, maybe 100s, mm -hmm. thought the F-4 was it, which mm -hmm. to them it was. To me it was like, eh, you know, but that's just all relative. Yeah. Yeah. Then you had it was great to fly. Also, it had adverse shock. 
The first time I got up with a guy to play and practice dog fighting, and I whipped him. Because I, just like a hun, you just hold it right in the middle, no aileron, use your rudders, and you can put your nose on him. He says, where'd you learn this? I'm an old hun pilot. I said, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> That's it, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so you had something interesting happen to you. You got a, an exchange posting on the F5. Yeah, well, Canadians, uh, I just, it was just timing. I was there, they needed an exchange pilot. Uh, and I was due for reassignment. I'd been, you know, on post there at base for several years. And they fit the bill. Lots of fighter experience is what they wanted. So it was a, a command staff job, but you also flew. And it was with a Canadian uh, headquarters air group just outside of Montreal. Oh, loved it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it was right after the... They were going to separate, and they never did mm -hmm. go back, fortunately. <laughs> That's another story. But I, I got to fly with the F-5s, checked out at Coal Lake, and then, and just like all their airplanes, they flew their T-Barrett as well, T-33. I also flew that in the Air National Guard. When I was in flying F-100, I flew the T-33 and the C-47 Dakota. Quite a varied range there. I flew that just for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't land it as a tail dragger. I'd never flown one. And I had a hell of a job. I'm flying this until I can land it. I finally good. <laughs> but anyway, I ended up, uh, they always souped up their engines, the Canadians. <laughs> so the F5 they had was hot compared to the American one, which <laughs> is good. Yeah. So I ended up there with them for three years. And, uh, I was two-year tour, I extended for a year, and that's when I found out I wasn't going to get riffed at 20, uh, 18 years. They were re reduction in force. Okay, yeah. I was a reserve officer. A lot of guys I knew, they'd see you. Nice having you around. You get nothing. Mm. Well, I got my 20, then they started getting, they, the things changed. Would you like to stay? Yeah, yeah, okay, so. So from there, I, I went to Thailand as a flight safety officer because you get to, if you volunteer from overseas to unaccompanied, you get a better pick when you come back. Ah, right, I see. So I did that. It was Karat, Thailand. It was great. And, uh, but they wouldn't give me the picks I wanted. But ah. so the best I could get was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It was A7, which I enjoyed flying that. I hadn't flown for a year. So I flew the T-33 again. They had a couple got recurrent in that. Then I went to uh, the A-7, and then the A-10 came in. It was the first squadron the A-10s were delivered to at Myrtle Beach. Mm -hmm. And I started flying that, but now I'd been there for X number of years, and they were building the wing over here. Mm -hmm. And I kept I keep wanting to come to Europe in the U.K., you volunteer for that, they'd send you to Asia. You know, it was typical. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wangled a friend of mine wangled an assignment for me to come mm -hmm. here in the ATS. Mm -hmm. I was in the second squadron, the mm -hmm. five tenth up there, the purple buzzard. So, Alan, you moved on to the A10. Can you tell us how this happened? Well, I was flying A7s at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and they were the first wing to convert to the A10. And so, 
I immediately started flying it, or training on it, you know. Got a local checkout, actually, because I was in the wing as a life support officer. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, I found they were going to build this huge double-sized wing in England. And uh, say, hey, my chance to get to Europe. And so I had a, just lucky, a guy owed me a few favors and was in assignments in TAC headquarters and said, I'll get you over there. So long story short, I finally got an assignment here and ended up in a squadron. Well, that's how I got here. Mm -hmm. and then every two years as a reserve officer, said, well, you want to stay two more? And I did, and I did, and I kept going. Uh, we were still hurting for experienced fighter pilots. So they said, yeah, we'll keep you. <laughs> Flew with the squadron for a year and a half, and then I... They said, we got to start instructing, so we built, actually, an instructor school here, a short, you know, because we didn't have two-seaters or simulators. And that, uh, from there, I just flew out of Bentwater and Woodbridge in Germany. We had four detachments in Germany, which before the wall went down, that's why we were actually here. This is our main base where we had Al Horn up north, uh, Norvenick, farther down, Simbach in the middle west, and then Lipheim in the south, all along the border. And near the Fulda Gap, where they figured if the Soviets are going to come in. Mm -hmm. So we did, I flew probably 35% of my flying in Germany, mm -hmm. like most of us did, back and forth, back and forth in the detachments. And uh, so that was the reason we were here, and yeah. we had twice the number of aircraft in a normal wing. Mm -hmm. So can you remember your first trip in the A-10? Because obviously, like you say, there was no two-seater or simulator. So yeah, it was, was like my first trip in an F-86. Mm -hmm. You had talked about it and got in the cockpit and looked around and said, yeah, okay, this is the speed it flies and the configuration, the flaps and that. It's fluid. So what was A it's... guy followed you around in his airplane. Yeah. yeah. So what was its handling characteristics like? Uh, it was very easy to fly. But uh, we, we didn't have any stability systems or autopilots or augmentation systems. So you had to fly it all the time. And being a big airplane, as you can see with this big old wing, it was kind of, you had to fly it constantly, all the time. You'd trim it up in a little bump. and you'd, So you actually worked at it all the time. We did ocean crossings, eight, nine hours and that. That was, you got, you were tired when you got the other end. So there was no fly-by-wire this time? No, no, no. Ooh. So you did really and, and no, yeah, and, and no augmentation systems either. You're constantly flying the airplane, like an old one. A pilot's aircraft then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was challenging, but good. I, I found it really good. So can you tell us what your role was when you came over to the UK and Europe? What was the role of the A-10? Well, it was to prevent the Warsaw Pact in the East German border along there where they had them, tanks lined up there, you know, to protect close air support and, of course, the anti-armor was what we were about mm -hmm. with the gun and with uh, missiles, Maverick missiles. That's easier to use because you're farther away from when they're shooting at you. <laughs> the gun, you got to get in close. That's why the bathtub underneath, titanium, we're getting shot from underneath because you're usually, you know, up above. Mm -hmm. And it could take a lot of punishment.
Um, obviously, you mentioned the gun there. We have to talk about it because the aircraft was built around the gun, wasn't it? Yeah. It. Uh, I think I can't remember now. I think fully loaded, you could get one thousand one hundred and seventy-three rounds loaded. That's a lot, and there was, it's a big thirty mil. The NATO thirty mil is about like that and straight. The 30 mil on this is a big neck down one. On the side of your forearm? Yeah. The muzzle velocity was fantastic. A mile from the barrel was still going faster than any other bullets of other aircraft out the, at muzzle. And it shot straight and flat. So you could, if you notice, like here, you notice the nose wheel is actually offset. That's so the gun can be right dead center. All other aircraft, they were either on the wings or on the side, so harmonization to be able to hit what you're aiming at, no problem with this. You just pointed it, and it hit. And do you remember your first time firing the gun? Oh, yeah, yeah. What was that like? Well, it was, uh, it was actually quite easy. I, I'd strafed before, you know, in A7s and F100s and the 104s. So I, had, I found it extremely accurate. The only problem with it was because it's the big wing, it was a bit floppy. So in rough air, it was harder to hold your pepper on the target. But you could work around that with years of training, <laughs> which was good. Us older guys did better than the young guys, you know, because they had experience flying stick and rudder rather than the electronics doing it for you. Mm -hmm. Could you smell it all coming through the cockpit once you fired? No, not really. You always had an oxygen mask on. Mm -hmm. If you could smell it, you probably had something wrong. <laughs> but when you had high rate or low rate, it was totally different. At low rate was 2,000 rounds a minute, high rate was four. So at high rate, it was low rate. But we fired low rate for practice to save ammo. Plus, in high rate, they found that the nose bumped on you. Oh, really? After about a one-second burst, which is a lot of... And did, did you do much live training when you were in Europe for firing the gun? Oh, yeah. All up and down the coast and doing the guns in Germany or Holland, uh, southwest here, all the bombing ranges along mm. up the coast here from the wash on up. You got to fire it at targets, you know, and then again out in the ocean the ships would drag targets past. You'd shoot at that. Must have been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, but we had what we call lead the fleet gun. I hated it. You had to fire a thousand rounds out in one mission. Ooh. After about six passes, God, is this thing ever going to get done? <laughs> and you seriously, guys, you go, man, I love it. You actually got tired of it. You was just rounding around because <laughs> you couldn't hold the trigger down too long. You burn the barrels out. Mm -hmm. So you had to keep it. In. <laughs> but it was it. Uh, Extremely accurate, incredible. Yeah, I think everyone loves the sound as well. That's quite famous. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just a big Gatling gun. I mean, you know, you had that on the 104s, A7s, but it was 20 mil. It's kind of, you know, this was. <laughs> That's the king, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, but it was extremely accurate for a gun. And did you ever work with European nations there? Did you work with the RAF? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we worked with the, the Germans, and especially over in Germany. And with the RAF and with the uh, Army here, 
For example, this one doesn't have it. It had a pod on it. It received a laser signal from a ground troop. And we would go up to a range up north of here where they had, you could actually hide behind a hill okay. and sneak along. And you knew where your, our, or your British Army guy was. And he'd say, okay. So they couldn't shoot at you. And he said, okay, I'm lasering the target. You'd pull up. And in your windscreen, this receptor would show where he was aiming his laser. And you just pulled right that and just squeezed the trigger. Really? It was that quick, and you were only exposed for a few seconds. And so that kind of thing was great for close air support. So we talked, we had three radios in it. Not just UHF, we had FM and uh, VHF. So we could talk with the Army as well, and ourselves, plus regular control people. So those, that was handy having your own radios in amongst the flight. Yeah. Some of the conversations on that were good. <laughs> I could imagine. <laughs> Can they hear us? No. Well, <laughs> so how different was it flying over in Europe compared to the U.S.? Oh, much different. Uh, we found it a lot easier. In the U.S., everything was air traffic control. You can't do that. Talk to us. We'll violate if you do that. Over here, it was like, especially in England, we loved it. Uh, uncontrolled airspace, see and miss. So instead of funneling everybody in all together in one little place where you might hit somebody, you just went your own way. And it worked. And we, they treated us so well over here, instead of, we'll violate, if you don't do it, we tell you in the States. It was really very restrictive. So over here was a better Here it was like, yeah, what can we do to help you? Where do you want to go? So as a pilot, I'm a lot better. Oh, it's fantastic. We, do, we get the tour, and the weather was bad. They'd take us down, London Mill would take us down to see where the Vikings came in and all that, and give us a running commentary of the whole history of the area. Over from the States went, geez, I love this. <laughs> and the Germans, except Frankfurt, they were terrible. Most of the other, Munich were the best. Mm -hmm. They would help you find weather and holes to get in and work and stuff. Mm -hmm. they, it was very different than the U.S. with strict control. And how often would you fly? Oh, golly. Was it a daily basis? Or yeah. Daily basis? When we were in Germany, yeah, daily basis. Mm -hmm. Then we had one here where we flew to see a record. We flew over 500 sorties in one day out of here. Wow. I flew five times that day by noon you and dropped, <laughs> I dropped 30 bombs total and fired the gun five times at target by noon. At five, you, you could only... The rules were different. For an A-10, you could fly more. Well, usually two a day was enough for other aircraft. Mm -hmm. But I would land in Germany. I was one of the first guys that flew in and out of the 1,500-foot runways over there. Yeah. 1,500 feet. That's nothing. Yeah, that's absolutely nothing. And I went in there with another guy and some, I can't remember, some Air Force general over there. You plank it down the first brick. with no drag shoot or anything. You just open the speed brakes. They're like, yay. Mm -hmm. And idly, I stop probably 800 feet. Mm -hmm. He tacks in, he gets underneath and plugs in the other hip. The brakes aren't hot. I said, General, that's the idea. That's why we're here. We could, we'd go out in the Army bases and they'd refuel it over the wing with jerry cans. So we could fly. Well, that was the whole idea. It was close air support and anti-armor, which is close air support. Mm -hmm. So we worked a lot with the Army. Yeah, I've we, heard that, We had yeah. tons of maps. We had nothing. We had a 
tactical air navigation attack and nav aid, which uh, was for up high, but when you're down low in the dirt, you can't use that stuff. We didn't have inertial systems or anything. We had mass, masses of them, folded special ways. We had GRF positioning on them so we could talk with the Army. That's where I learned how to use kilometers. <laughs> Instead of knots, yeah. which is what we use, yeah. mile an hour and then kilometers, walking with the Army. So I'm easy on that. Yeah, that's, that's okay. We had massive maps and flying with your finger in the fog. That's, yeah, there's, a, that's, there's an Audubon there. Uh-oh, there's no airplanes. There's no cars in that Audubon. You're in the east sector. Get out. Get out, yeah. Yeah, that was... <laughs> Literally like that. Yeah. So let's talk about the cockpit. Was it all analog still at this time, and was it comfortable? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all analog. So, yeah, it was... Uh... They've since put all kinds of stuff in it. I haven't even seen guys are telling me that... Yeah. Automatic stuff, you know, firing the guns and dropping bombs, all automatic. Mm -hmm. You know, play a video game and it hits. Mm -hmm. Well, here it was, you'd feel it, the wind and, you know, sort of like they bombed during World War II. You really had to fly the thing. Yeah. And the engines are quite unusual. How, how Were they reliable for the aircraft? Very. Uh, like all aircraft, they're underpowered. But that was the idea. It was very quiet. And you could stay for several hours over a target area. We have fast jets you know, in and out. Didn't see anything too fast. Here you can sit there. And you learn how to read maps really well and see the terrain. And you really learned about, ah, there could be tanks going in there. I see this and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you'd be talking with the Army guy on the ground. And he says, yeah, I'm just over here and that. So it was really good training. But we never had to use it, mm. which is great. Which is great, yeah. The most difficult thing was when you had a lot of airplanes on missions over there, like a big uh, air meet, and you'd have F-16s and Phantoms, and, all, and you had a time to be on a target, and the weather was bad. You couldn't pull in the afterburner and climb up and have your computer take you down. You had no power, so you had to kind of jink around the hills and go off your course. Well, how do you make your time? That was very challenging. So obviously you came from some really powerful aircraft. Do you think the lack of speed and thrust was a hindrance for the aircraft? Well, in a way, it, it would have been nice to have a little extra poop and to get out of the bad weather and to get back down where you could work. Well, we were always in the dirt, as we called it, and rooting around. So as a hog, we called it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we still use maps, and you could you learn how to read maps. I think that's probably a good skill to have. Hey, we get kids come over from the states that they've never been in a cloud, you know. They're pilots. Mm -hmm. They come over here. You go. Uh oh. <laughs> they do instrument training under the bag, but they've never actually been in bad weather. Yeah. And you got to follow them around. That was the most difficult thing to do, I've ever done to follow a young lieutenant in the weather. He doesn't know how to lead a flight. He doesn't know to be smooth and give signals and so he could stay in his wing. You see the size of that wing. I've never been lost wingman in my life, including in Vietnam in a bad weather. I went many times on this because the guy would, you teach it, okay, now here's the terminology they use in the UK. 
in this there. Now you need to go practice flying here in the, in the weather. And the guy would just throw the flaps down the speed brakes out in your face. Well, you can't hit him, but you're in the murk, so you just peel away. Yeah. And then try to join up with him somewhere. <laughs> I, the closest I probably came to pranging in this airplane was new guys. And, a bit frustrating, I imagine, for you. Well, it was hard. It was really very, very shaky. Mm -hmm. You get those kids in bad weather on a bombing range, and you got three of them out there, and you're trying to watch them and yourself. In the wash, you got was the horizon. And I, that's when I finally didn't do the last two years. I figured I'm going to sit behind the desk, but I, I was just getting headaches, mm -hmm. you know, making sure I didn't kill anybody, including me. <laughs> exactly, but you're here today, which is great. Yeah. So did you ever fly any large exercises on the A-10? Yeah, yeah. And what was that like? Well, great. Well, TAM-80, Tactical Air Meet 1980 in Europe, we flew out of Ramstein, then we had everything. Even the French get in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of. Uh, and Belgians and Germans and the USAF F4s and us and uh, what else we had? The RAF. We were all over there and it's huge exercises. That's when I was talking about the rapiers. Mm -hmm. When they, uh, the British had their rapiers there, were taking pictures showing us how that system worked it was great. We learned a lot. That's when we found out we had really difficulty trying to meet. You had to be in a spot here and don't go there because other people were dropping bombs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you couldn't plug in the burner to make up time, what do you do? <laughs> so you found ways, but sometimes you just couldn't get there. Yeah. On a big operation, you just couldn't do it. So how do you think the other nations of NATO viewed the A-10? Did they, did they like the aircraft? Yeah. they. <laughs> Especially because we were so slow, <laughs> everybody could bounce us. So I mean, I'm, I'm pulling up in the gap going up to Scotland, and the training jets would see us down low and go, hey, we can catch these guys and they'd be attacking you. Jeez, everywhere you look, somebody was, I think I saw my back got so slow, yanking and banking at everybody. We were easy to get. Easy target. Well, they couldn't shoot us because we could outturn them all. Yeah, because I had a really they good They couldn't track thing. us, but... Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. we were easy meat for anybody. So oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what was your favorite thing about the A-10? I would think it's the actual physically flying an airplane yourself. Reading maps, dropping weapons, shooting, getting around, navigating. You did all of that like we used to do way, but you didn't have anything to help you. Nothing. If you if you what you lost, what do you do? Well, I don't know. I don't have any inertial systems or anything to tell me where I am. Mm -hmm. So it was a constant. It was great training for guys who went on into like F-16s and that. And I I met some of them after they flew here. They said, "Oh, you're flying A-10s. They're slow. You can't get into a fast jet. Generals don't know anything when it comes to that." Mm -hmm. Hey, and this guy's one Top Gun of the USAF every time they got in an F-16 because it was so easy. Exactly. They had the basics. And the computer just went, hey, this guy's easy, I'll just... <laughs> and so it, it was probably the best trainer to teach guys how to fly so when all this magic stuff doesn't work, mm -hmm. you can still get the job done. And when it does work, awesome. Brilliant. Lethal, yeah. So. How many hours did you get on A-10 and did you enjoy flying it? Uh, it was about 1,300 and something. Wow. 
somewhere 1400 around in there somewhere I got a thousand hour patch and I kept flying I don't know what I got after that I, I was never big on taking pictures of me and all that stuff so I, do you enjoy flying at your time on the air yeah yeah oh yeah it's great except the ocean crossings <laughs> so Al do you have any hobbies oh yeah I don't do it anymore because our back is so bad and I'm old, but golf. Guess I was a parachutist as well. Did a lot of scuba diving. Yeah. Uh, I don't, as soon as I retired, I didn't fly anymore. I, I couldn't afford my own 104. I said, <laughs> no, well, there you go. I sit, in, I sit in the back and go, I hope he knows something he's doing up there. <laughs> Have you got a favorite aircraft you've flown in your career? Uh, 104, the clean one, souped up job was That's a favorite. Yeah, that. it was just so fun to fly, and it, you know you could do anything. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty powerful. Aircraft. Oh, unbelievable that that one. Did you ever go Mach two in the F 104? Oh yeah, beyond that. Really? How fast did you manage to? Well, about almost 2.5, but you started getting compressor inlet temperature lights. It's time to quit. <laughs> <laughs> it would have gone faster, but it probably would have blown the engine, you know, and you're, those speeds, you're all, <laughs> you're, you're, you're done <laughs> for good. So some of the unmarried guys, I think they got up a little faster, but. And is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown that you didn't? Uh, yeah, F-16. F-16. Yeah. Why but one? it was too late, you know, for me to fly. When did they come in the F-16? Oh. They came in when I was still flying A-10s, but I was about to retire, so I wasn't going to check out in the new. Mm -hmm. So when you came over to the UK, was that you based here forever, or did you go back to the US? Well, I stayed here. You liked it that much? Uh, yeah. Well, I bought a nice bungalow across from the golf course. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. I'll stay. My wife was ready to go back. We had a place in, near Montreal in New York State, just across the border from Quebec. But I said, oh, let's stick around here for a year and see how it goes. And I got a lot of good buddies playing golf there, mm -hmm. British friends. So overall, did you enjoy your flying career? Loved it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely loved it. Some good friends of mine got out and went with the airlines because back then in the late 50s, early 60s, the pay was five times what they paid us military guys. I mean, it was incredibly different. Yeah. And, it, and the working hours, you know, three days a week, maybe four. A lot of my met since I wish I'd have stayed mm -hmm. because the pay was, but the camaraderie in the military itself, I really loved it, and the people, you know, mm -hmm. it's your own community that everybody looks after you. You look after each other. Very unique. I'm sure other, you know, like airlines or whoever groups have the same sort of thing, but the military is unique in that, and everybody. When somebody gets killed and all that, which happened a lot, especially in the fighter business back you know, years ago, when they used to crash them a lot, now they don't because they're so well built. <laughs> and plus, you can get a guy who's a ham fist that the airplane won't let him crash it, which is nice. Yeah. So everybody kind of looked after everybody. That's something that you really, I miss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And are you still involved with this uh, now a museum? I, what, what's your role here? Well, I just come out as a member occasionally. There's something I really want to hear. Who, who's talking? Mm -hmm. You know, and some of the old guys I, I knew from way back. And like, you get the SR 71 guy, and that's interesting. 
uh, and plus, well, I did a couple of talks, but because they, they're looking for people to do that, I said, well, what do you want? And we got the whole history, and I started, yeah, we can do two, you know, and telling war stories about guys smoking in the cockpit and burning their lips and all that sort of stuff, which is quite funny, yeah. <laughs> which kind of makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. but, uh, the flying part of it was incredible. But again, I just, I said, a lot of guys get out and they want to keep flying. I never, uh, military flying and fast airplanes was great. Not going to beat that, are you? No, and I said, I can't afford a 104. <laughs> so I, I, otherwise I'd have probably, uh, plus I'm a little slow now, I think, for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Al, thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, you're quite welcome. <laughs>